Chapter Three of Is He Popinjoy? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Swigley, Charlottesville, Virginia, USA. Is He Popinjoy? By Anthony Trollope. Chapter Three. Life at Manor Cross. The married couple passed their honeymoon in Ireland. Lady Brotherton having a brother, an Irish peer who lent them for a few months his house on the Blackwater. The marriage, of course, was celebrated in the cathedral, and equally, of course, the officiating clergymen were the dean and canon Holdenau. On the day before the marriage, Lord George was astonished to find how rich a man was his father-in-law. "'Mary's fortune is her own,' he said. "'But I should like to give her something. Perhaps I had better give it to you on her behalf. Then he shuffled a cheque for a thousand pounds into Lord George's hands. He moreover gave his daughter a hundred pounds in notes on the morning of the wedding, and thus acted the part of the benevolent father and father-in-law to a miracle. It may be acknowledged here that the receipt of the money removed a heavy weight from Lord George's heart. He was himself so poor, and at the same time so scrupulous, that he had lacked funds sufficient for the usual brightness of a wedding tour. He would not take his mother's money, nor lessen his own small patrimony, but now it seemed that wealth was showered on him from the deanery. Perhaps a sojourn in Ireland did as well as anything could towards assisting the young wife in her object of falling in love with her husband. He would hardly have been a sympathetic companion in Switzerland or Italy, as he did not care for lakes or mountains. But Ireland was new to him, and new to her, and he was glad to have an opportunity of seeing something of a people as to whom so little is really known in England. And at Ballycondra on the Blackwater they were justified in feeling a certain interest in the welfare of the tenants around them. There was something to be done, and something of which they could talk. Lord George, who couldn't hunt, and wouldn't dance, and didn't care for mountains, could inquire with some zeal how much wages a peasant might earn, and what he would do with it when earned. It interested him to learn that whereas an English laborer will certainly eat and drink his wages from week to week, so that he could not be trusted to pay any sum half yearly, an Irish peasant, though he be half starving, will save his money for the rent. And Mary, at his instance, also cared for these things, it was her gift, as with many women, to be able to care for everything. It was perhaps her misfortune that she was apt to care too much for many things. The honeymoon in Ireland answered its purpose, and Lady George, when she came back to Manor Cross, almost thought that she had succeeded. She was, at any rate, able to assure her father that she had been as happy as the day was long, and that he was absolutely perfect. This assurance of perfection the dean no doubt took at its proper value. He patted his daughter's cheek as she made it, and kissed her, and told her that he did not doubt, but that, with a little care, she might make herself a happy woman. The house in town had already been taken under his auspices, but of course was not to be inhabited yet. It was a very small but very pretty little house in a quaint little street called Munster Court, near Story's Gate, with a couple of windows looking into St. James's Park. 
It was now September, and London for the present was out of the question. Indeed, it had been arranged that Lord George and his wife should remain at Manor Cross till after Christmas. But the house had to be furnished, and the dean evinced his full understanding of the duties of a father-in-law in such an emergency. This, indeed, was so much the case that Lord George became a little uneasy. He had the greater part of the thousand pounds left, which he insisted on expending, and thought that that should have sufficed. But the dean explained in his most cordial manner, and no man's manner could be more cordial than the dean's, that Mary's fortune from Mr. Tallowax had been unexpected, that having had but one child he intended to do well by her, and that therefore he could now assist in starting her well in life without doing himself a damage. The house in this way was decorated and furnished, and sundry journeys up to London served to brighten the autumn, which might otherwise have been dull and tedious. At this period of her life two things acting together, and both acting in opposition to her anticipations of life, surprised the young bride not a little. The one was her father's manner of conversation with her, and the other was her husband's. The dean had never been a stern parent, but he had been a clergyman, and as a clergyman he had inculcated a certain strictness of life, a very modified strictness indeed, but something more rigid than might have come from him had he been a lawyer or a country gentleman. Mary had learned that he wished her to attend the cathedral services, and to interest herself respecting them, and she had always done so. He had explained to her that, although he kept a horse for her to ride, he, as the dean of Brotherton, did not wish her to be seen in the hunting field. In her dress, her ornaments, her books, her parties, there had been always something to mark slightly her clerical belongings. She had never chafed against this because she loved her father and was naturally obedient, but she had felt something perhaps of a soft regret. Now her father, whom she saw very frequently, never spoke to her of any duties. How should her house be furnished? In what way would she lay herself out for London society? What enjoyments of life could she best secure? These seemed to be the matters on which he was most intent. It occurred to her that when speaking to her of the house in London, he never once asked her what church she would attend, and that when she spoke with pleasure of being so near the abbey, he paid little or no attention to her remark. And then, too, she felt rather than perceived that in his counsels to her he almost intimated that she must have a plan of life different from her husband's. There were no such instructions given, but it almost seemed as though this were implied. He took it for granted that her life was to be gay and bright, though he seemed to take it also for granted that Lord George did not wish to be gay and bright. All this surprised her, but it did not perhaps surprise her so much as the serious view of life which her husband from day to day impressed upon her. That hero of her early dreams, that man with the light hair and the dimpled chin, whom she had not as yet quite forgotten, had never scolded her, had never spoken a serious word to her, and had always been ready to provide her with amusements that never palled. But Lord George made out a course of reading for her, so much for the two hours after breakfast, so much for the hour before dressing, so much for the evening, and also a table of results to be acquired in three months, in six months, 
and so much by the close of the first year, and even laid down the sum total of achievements to be produced by a dozen years of such work. Of course she determined to do as he would have her do. The great object of her life was to love him, and of course if she really loved him she would comply with his wishes. She began her daily hour of gibbon after breakfast with great zeal, but there was present to her an idea that if the gibbon had come from her father, and the instigations to amuse herself from her husband, it would have been better. These things surprised her, but there was another matter that vexed her. Before she had been six weeks at Manor Cross, she found that the ladies set themselves up as her tutors. It was not the Marchioness who offended her so much as her three sisters-in-law. The one of the family whom she had always liked best had been also liked best by Mr. Holdenow, and had gone to live next door to her father at the close. Lady Alice, though perhaps a little tiresome, was always gentle and good-natured. Her mother-in-law was too much in awe of her own eldest daughter ever to scold any one. But Lady Sarah could be very severe, and Lady Susanna could be very stiff, and Lady Amelia always re-echoed what her elder sisters said. Lady Sarah was by far the worst. She was forty years old, and looked as though she were fifty, and wished to be thought sixty. That she was in truth very good, no one, either at Manor Cross, or in Brotherton, or in any of the parishes around, ever doubted. She knew every poor woman on the estate, and had a finger in the making of almost every petticoat worn. She spent next to nothing on herself, giving away almost all her own little income. She went to church whatever was the weather. She was never idle, and never wanted to be amused. The place in the carriage which would naturally have been hers, she had always surrendered to one of her sisters, when there had been five ladies at Manor Cross and now she surrendered again to her brother's wife. She spent hours daily in the parish school. She was doctor and surgeon to the poor people, never sparing herself. But she was harsh-looking, had a harsh voice, and was dictatorial. The poor people had become used to her and liked her ways. The women knew that her stitches never gave way, and the men had a wholesome confidence in her medicines, her plasters, and her cookery. But Lady George Germain did not see by what right she was to be made subject to her sister-in-law's jurisdiction. Church matters did not go quite on all fours at Manor Cross. The ladies, as has before been said, were all high, the Marchioness being the least exigent in that particular, and Lady Amelia the most so. Ritual, indeed, was the one point of interest in Lady Amelia's life. Among them there was assent enough for daily comfort, but Lord George was in this respect, and in this respect only, a trouble to them. He never declared himself openly, but it seemed to them that he did not care much about church at all. He would generally go of a Sunday morning, but there was a conviction that he did so chiefly to oblige his mother. Nothing was ever said of this. There was probably present to the ladies some feeling, not uncommon, that religion is not so necessary for men as for women. But Lady George was a woman, and Lady George was also the daughter of a clergyman. There was now a double connection between Manor Cross 
and the close at Brotherton. Mr. Canon Holdenough, who was an older man than the dean, and had been longer known in the diocese, was a most unexceptional clergyman, rather high, leaning towards the high and dry, very dignified, and quite as big a man in Brotherton as the dean himself. The dean was indeed the dean, but Mr. Holdenough was uncle to a baronet, and the Holdenoughs had been Holdenoughs when the conqueror came, and then he also had a private income of his own. Now all this gave to the ladies at Manor Cross a peculiar right to be great in church matters, so that Lady Sarah was able to speak with much authority to Mary when she found that the bride, though a dean's daughter, would only go to two services a week, and would shirk one of them if the weather gave the slightest colouring of excuse. "'You used to like the cathedral services,' Lady Sarah said to her one day when Mary had declined to go to the parish churches to sing the praises of St. Processus. "'That was because they were cathedral services,' said Mary. "'You mean to say that you attended the house of God because the music was good?' Mary had not thought the subject over sufficiently to be enabled to say that good music is supplied with the object of drawing large congregations, so she only shrugged her shoulders. "'I, too, like good music, dear, but I do not think the want of it should keep me from church.' Mary again shrugged her shoulders, remembering as she did so that her sister-in-law did not know one tune from another. Lady Alice was the only one of the family who had ever studied music. "'Even your papa goes on saints' days,' continued Lady Sarah, conveying a sneer against the dean by that word even. "'Papa is dean. I suppose he has to go. "'He would not go to church, I suppose, unless he approved of going?' The subject then dropped. Lady George had not yet arrived at that sort of snarling home intimacy which would have justified her in telling Lady Sarah that if she wanted a lesson at all, she would prefer to take it from her husband. The poor women's petticoats were another source of trouble. Before the autumn was over, by the end of October, when Mary had been two months at Manor Cross, she had been got to acknowledge that ladies living in the country should employ a part of their time in making clothes for the poor people, and she very soon learned to regret the acknowledgment. She was quickly driven into a corner by an assertion from Lady Sarah that, such being the case, the time to be so employed should be defined. She had intended to make something, perhaps an entire petticoat, at some future time. But Lady Sarah was not going to put up with conduct such as that. Mary had acknowledged her duty. Did she mean to perform it, or to neglect it? She made one petticoat, and then gently appealed to her husband. Did not he think that petticoats could be bought cheaper than they could be made? He figured it out and found that his wife could earn three halfpence a day by two hours' work, and even Lady Sarah did not require from her more than two hours daily. Was it worth while that she should be made miserable for nine pence a week, less than two pounds a year? Lady George figured it out also and offered the exact sum one pound nineteen shillings to lady sarah in order that she might be let off for the first twelve months then lady sarah was full of wrath 
Was that the spirit in which offerings were to be made to the Lord? Mary was asked with stern indignation, whether in bestowing the work of her hands upon the people, whether in the very fact that she was doing for the poor that which was distasteful to herself, she did not recognize the performance of a duty? Mary considered a while, and then said that she thought a petticoat was a petticoat, and that perhaps the one made by the regular petticoat-maker would be the best. She did not allude to the grand doctrine of the division of labor, nor did she hint that she might be doing more harm than good by interfering with regular trade, because she had not studied those matters. But that was the line of her argument. Lady Sarah told her that her heart in that matter was as hard as a nether millstone. The young wife, not liking this, withdrew, and again appealed to her husband. His mind was divided on the subject. He was clearly of opinion that the petticoat should be obtained in the cheapest market, but he doubted much about that three halfpence in two hours. It might be that his wife could not do better at present, but experience would come, and in that case she would be obtaining experience as well as earning three halfpence. And moreover, petticoats made at Manor Cross would, he thought, undoubtedly be better than any that could be bought. He came, however, to no final decision, and Mary, finding herself every morning sitting in a great petticoat conclave, hardly had an alternative but to join it. It was not in any spirit of complaint that she spoke on the subject to her father as the winter came on. A certain old Miss Tallowax had come to the deanery, and it had been thought proper that Lady George should spend a day or two there. Miss Tallowax also had money of her own, and even still owned a share in the business, and the dean had pointed out both to Lord George and his wife that it would be well that they should be civil to her. Lord George was to come on the last day and dine and sleep at the deanery. On this occasion, when the dean and his daughter were alone together, she said something in a playful way about the great petticoat contest. "'Don't you let those old ladies sit upon you,' said the dean. He smiled as he spoke, but his daughter well knew from his tone that he meant his advice to be taken seriously. "'Of course, papa, I should like to accommodate myself to them as much as I can. But you can't, my dear. Your manner of life can't be their manner, nor theirs yours. I should have thought that George would see that. He didn't take their part, you know. Of course he didn't. As a married woman, you are entitled to have your own way, unless he should wish it otherwise. I don't want to make this matter serious, but if it is pressed, tell them that you do not care to spend your time in that way. They cling to old fashions, that is natural enough, but it is absurd to suppose that they should make you as old-fashioned as themselves. He had taken the matter up quite seriously, and had given his daughter advice, evidently with the intention that she should profit by it. That which he had said as to her being a married woman struck her forcibly. No doubt these ladies at Manor Cross were her superiors in birth, but she was their brother's wife and, as a married woman, had rights of her own. A little spirit of rebellion already began to kindle itself within her bosom, but in it there was nothing of mutiny against her husband. If he were to desire her to make petticoats all day, of course she would make them, 
but in this contest he had been, as it were, neutral, and had certainly given her no orders. She thought a good deal about it while at the deanery, and made up her mind that she would sit in the petticoat conclave no longer. It could not be her duty to pass her time in an employment in which a poor woman might with difficulty earn sixpence a day. Surely she might do better with her time than that, even though she should spend it all in reading Gibbon. End of chapter 3